This is a question and answer session with Joel titled Boundaries and Compassion, recorded July 26th, 1992, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Okay, does anybody have a question? I was finding myself reflecting on the Sufi invocation of um, God or Allah as mercy and compassion. I was wondering if you had any comments on that. Mercy and compassion not only as God's nature per se, is but the practice of it, part of the spiritual path. What has been your reflection? Oh, I don't know. I was just seeing other people as God. That was the thing that was... And I was wondering if that was what compassion meant in that context. You know, I'm sure there's vast Sufi literature on the subject, mm -hmm. so I, I'm not going to speak from a particular Sufi point of view, but the idea of God being compassionate, merciful, loving is a universal idea. Mm -hmm. And it sounds almost corny to us in our culture, because of course in our materialist culture, the universe is just a cold place of random uh, matter bubbling around without any particular reason. or you. You have no reason to describe it as compassionate or merciful or loving. And yet in all the traditions, of course, this is exactly the way God or the divinity is described. One of the simplest formulas of this is in the New Testament somewhere. John says God is love, period. The simplest definition you could possibly imagine. In the aspect of thinking of God or Allah as being compassionate and merciful, you can think of it this way. In a deluded state, where you imagine yourself to be a limited self with limited consciousness, you've created an imaginary boundary in a limitless ocean of consciousness. And so all the qualities that you find inside that boundary are also outside that boundary. If you can love inside that boundary, then you can think of what's on the outside of that boundary as loving as well. So, in this deluded state, you can create for yourself an image that is objective. I don't mean a visual image necessarily, although a visual image could be a help to this. A kind of concept a kind of perception that just as the consciousness that is behind and knows all things that are happening in here within this boundary also exists outside this boundary and you can call that God or Allah or Shiva, any sort of personalized concept of God. And then you can also think of this as the creator not as a creator who sort of sat around in the darkness of eternity and decided one day he'd sort of make a hunk of matter over here and form it and create it over there and let it run, but as a creator in the same way that your consciousness creates. Constantly. Just look inside. It's creating worlds and fantasies and uh, deciding things about it and having attitudes about it and so forth. In fact, the creator is creating not at some particular point back in the past, but constantly in the present. What's going on inside is going on outside, as long as we have this boundary here. Now, why? Why should this creation take place? It's fun. <laughs> Why does an artist paint a picture? Why does a dancer dance? Why does a poet compose poetry? Doesn't the poet love the poetry? Doesn't the dancer love the dance? Doesn't the musician love the music? 
We're using an analogy here. But the love for the creation is very understandable in relation to what happens in any creative consciousness. Now, let's extend this a little bit. Supposing that creation is somehow in danger. Supposing an artist creates a beautiful painting and then it's carted off to the dump and about to be thrown away. The artist loves that and reaches out to that creation and would try to save it. Now, in our case, there's nobody else carrying us off to the dump. We carry ourselves off to the dump. And so we can think of this consciousness as reaching out in that sort of compassionate, merciful way. We could also think of it a little bit more subtly as that consciousness, not so much reaching out to something specific over here, but being constantly open. In fact, since we actually only imagine that we go to the dump, we're not actually going to a dump, we cannot actually get away from this consciousness, we cannot actually avoid God, that this mercy is an all-embracing openness that is just always there if you would wake up to it, if you but realize it. So we don't even have to think of it as an active power, although this is valuable sometimes in a relative sense. When you are particularly unhappy, when you are particularly despairing, when you really feel like you've been thrown on the dump, it can feel like a reaching out, a light through the darkness. And you shouldn't feel uh, embarrassed to feel this way. You shouldn't think it's fundamentalist or something. Just don't make any final decisions about what the ultimate status of all this is. But to feel this uh, and to respond to it is extraordinarily valuable on a spiritual path. If you don't have that sense of inner response, then all the other stuff you do is quite mechanical. But then after a while you realize that God's mercy is always there. It has that dramatic appearance in dramatic moments, but you don't necessarily have to wait for any dramatic moments. So then it becomes just a question of lowering your guard a little bit, and you see it's just there. And so as long as there's this boundary, this delusion of an inner and an outer, there is a certainly valid perception of the outer having this capacity for love, for compassion, for mercy. And as you respond to that, you find this love, compassion, and mercy is invoked inside the boundary. But it's the same thing. The more you respond, the more you realize that you don't have to wait for any big dramatic moment. Love and compassion and mercy aren't necessarily tremendously emotional experiences. It can be just sitting on your front porch, just allowing things to be. And when this sense of love and compassion on the outside starts to permeate your life, and when it's also manifested on the inside, more and more you see it's just really one quality. And the more the singleness of this quality is present, the less solid this boundary seems. It doesn't feel like it's dividing the inside from the outside as much. And when this presence is fully experienced, you can think of it as a kind of light. It just completely washes out that boundary. Then you no longer speak of God being compassionate and merciful. This is the quality of consciousness itself. As the New Testament says, God is love. Consciousness is compassion. It just is. It's the nature of things. 
Then you start to grasp what the Hindus talk about, that all this is just the divine play, the Leela of Brahman. Then it's not even like the artist with the painting, it's like the dance and the dancer, where you can't separate them out. The dancer is the dance. So these are levels of approaching this teaching. And the whole point of the teaching is to be useful here. It's not to make a philosophical statement about the world. The point of the teaching is to look for that compassion and mercy in your experience, to be sensitive to it, to be attuned to it. So that when a little ray pierces through the armor, you recognize it and you don't dismiss it. You can follow it. Wherever a ray of compassion or mercy or love comes into your life, that means there's a hole in the armor someplace. So this is a teaching to uh, point out something to look for in your own experience and to trust, saying Allah is compassionate and merciful. It's to trust that. That is the basic fundamental nature of the world. when I talk here, I stress the mystical aspects of teachings and traditions. And sometimes I think people feel that that means that anything that isn't a pure mystical teaching in the most refined sense should be dismissed. There's something that smacks of fundamentalism or exotericism, you know, like the idea that God is love and that you could respond to that. That's not true at all. The only trouble with fundamentalists is that they don't take this teaching as a practical teaching, something to be utilized, but they take it as a ultimate teaching. If God's described in the Bible as some sort of being in eternity who fashions up the world and sets it down there, well, by God, that's the way it is. No more investigation about it. That's just the first step. It's a clue. Each of these teachings is another clue. And the whole path is a great big mystery story. And you're the detective. And you follow these clues. That particular clue is a vital clue, however, to the teaching of compassion and love. Any other questions? I wonder if you could talk about uh, seamlessness and effortlessness of life. Maybe specifically, like this, the seamlessness of like this moment we're all sharing together, and the, the seamlessness of nature, as you talked about in your book, as you travel across country, and the seamlessness of our mysticism and science kind of flow together. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, start with the first and see how far we get. That's a, a huge order. Seamlessness was a term that I used to describe the difference between afternosis and beforenosis, the difference of how the world's experienced. Close your eyes and imagine a circle. Everybody try this. Close your eyes and imagine a circle. Now, the line that forms the circle is a boundary. The boundary defines what's inside but it also defines what is outside. It divides the inner from the outer, but it also connects the inner to the outer. It connects it perfectly. So that if I start turning that circle into a kind of a, an eight-shaped figure, keep doing this now in your mind, then the whole outer universe takes on the informed H-shape. If I take that circle and make it into an oval, the whole outer universe has a inform of an oval. However this boundary moves, there's an absolutely perfect fit between the inside and the outside. Now, realize this boundary, which is the seam, is imaginary. You're imagining it. Aren't you? Open your eyes. It's gone. It didn't exist. 
the whole universe is divided in this way, with seams that all have this perfect fit, that move and change, and yet are all imaginary. Completely imaginary. That doesn't make them valueless. You wouldn't have any play if there wasn't imagination. But they are imaginary. The reason there's this perfect fit is because they are imaginary. They aren't real. So the trick here is not to get rid of imagination, to get rid of boundaries. The trick is to see what they really are, that they are imaginary. And then they're transparent. The world is just obviously seamless. It in itself doesn't have any. No boundaries, no borders. It's all of a piece. That's what I mean by seamless. It's not an intellectual thing to understand. It's quite experiential. The seeing of it isn't experiential, but the result changes the whole nature of how you experience the world. And you see, I'm already trapped by language having to talk about an I who experiences the world or you who experiences the world. Because it's precisely that boundary, the one between I and other, self and world, that's the boundary that causes us all problems. That's the boundary that causes suffering and the fear of death makes us believe in death. So all boundaries, including that boundary, are imaginary. Now, there are two things about this. First of all, if they're imaginary, then there's no real death. And we talk about death in relation to this boundary that doesn't exist. We talk about Hamlet, person who doesn't exist. Go down to the Knight Library at the University of Oregon and look up Hamlet in their catalog, and you will find shelves and shelves of books, scholarly books written about Hamlet. There's one book, a famous one, I read during the 60s, I forgot what it is now, giving a psychoanalytic interpretation of Hamlet. Psychoanalyzing Hamlet. There's problems with his mother and, you know, his Oedipal complexes. But Hamlet never existed. Amazing, isn't it? That doesn't mean we should burn all the books about Hamlet in the Knight Library. But let's remember that Hamlet doesn't really exist. This is a play. This is fun, you know? So the first thing about this realization is that there are no scenes, and therefore whatever fears or anxieties or whatever you have that are built around these seams are foundless. They have no foundation. And that's the liberation side. That's why all these traditions talk about salvation from sin, liberation from delusion. That's the relief and the release side. Ah, this nightmare wasn't real. The other side, however, the bliss side is they're imaginary, and so the world isn't fixed. In fact, we can't even say that there is a particular world. There are worlds that we move through. You might adopt the world for 30 seconds. Get rid of it. Walk into another world. Get rid of it. If you sit down and talk to a physicist, fascinating world you live in. Fascinating. Mathematical laws and logos and full of paradoxes. Wonderful world. Beautiful world. Is that the real world? No. Go to a concert of Tibetan monks chanting mandalas, cyclic existence, hell realms and god realms, spectacular world, dramatic world. Is that the real world? No. There is no real world. So there's the, the joy, the bliss of adventuring in all these worlds and worlds that you just haven't dreamed of yet. 
There are many, many worlds. There are infinite worlds. And most people are stuck in one or two. They're stuck there. They think they're real. They're living in the Taj Mahal, and they're stuck in a closet in the Taj Mahal. And they don't believe that the rest of the Taj Mahal is real. They won't leave their little prison of a closet. Plato said it, you know, people live in the prison house of the soul. And not only do people live in the prison house of the soul, they're their own jailers. Nobody else has jailed them. And to top it off, they aren't even real. So this is the other side of seamlessness. Not only is it a release and a relief from the suffering that's caused by taking these imaginary seams and boundaries to be real, but it's also the freedom to play. I don't think I covered how it relates to science and all of philosophy and the rest of your question, but let's leave it at that for now, unless you have more to ask. I just have to make a comment. My daughter uh, just moved away and moved to Spokane, Washington, and she's around her in-laws for the first time. And uh, her mother-in-law was talking to her about me, and she says, well... I've really never met your mother, but I hear she's a real kook. <laughs> That's the seems there, you know, of a different world. And obviously oh. very out there. But this is wonderful. As one specific example of this universal phenomena of boundaries that haunts our lives continually. And that is these judgments we make. So-and-so is a kook. So-and-so is a genius. These are imaginary. Now, it doesn't mean to suspend all judgment in the sense that you walk through the world and no judgment arises about what you're seeing. In physical form, you wouldn't last very long if you did that. There's a wonderful little story about that, actually. It's about a disciple who was studying with his guru, and his guru told him everything is God. You're God, and everything is God. And so he thought he understood this teaching. It was wonderful, and it actually made him feel good. He even got a little taste of it. And he starts off down the path from his guru's ashram, and here comes this elephant with a mahout on it, and the elephant's completely out of control, raging and trumpeting and smashing and thrashing. And the mahout sees this disciple walking along, and he says, get out of the way, get out of the way. He says, the elephant's uncontrollable, he's gone mad. And the disciple says, well, he says, I'm God, the elephant's God, what can happen? And sure enough, the elephant comes and picks him up in his trunk and bashes him around a little bit and throws him down and tromps on him and rushes off. And broken and bleeding and bruised, the disciple crawls back up to the ashram to his guru. And his guru says, what happened to you? And he says, well, you told me that... Everything was God, and uh, then I walked down the path, and this mahu came along, and he's riding this elephant. He said, get out of the way, the elephant's mad, but you told me everything was God, so I thought there was going to be no problem. And this guru looks at him and says, well, the mahat was God too. Why didn't you listen to him? (laughs) (laughs) What is the teaching? It doesn't mean to walk around without any sort of judgment. It means to know that the judgment is imaginary. It's part of the play. It's tentative. We hurt each other so much by establishing these judgments and imposing these images as though they were real instead of taking them for what they are. The play of masks. So maybe uh, today's your day to play kook. My day's the day to play a profound teacher. Then when I walk out here, I'll trip on the steps and fall down and I'll look like an ass, you know? It's okay. That's the play. This is a very good example of how this mistaking the world as being composed of jagged entities causes suffering rather than realizing it's a seamless uh, display 
Very good. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Okay. Somebody's dealing with a lot of stress in life and what seems to be, if one was going to make judgments, all the, the worst qualities of humanity, dishonesty and deception and all of that kind of stuff. And, and one is getting totally lost in this horrible fantasy. How can that best be turned around to be grist for the spiritual mill, so to speak? Well, first, let me say there are two approaches to this problem. And everybody has this, you know, in one form or another, and some degree or another throughout their lives. The first approach is the bear approach. The what? The bear. You, nobody's seen this? It's on television at least five, six times a day. Bear aspirin. Bear. Oh, no, you see, there's, oh, they show you. They show you people really upset, under stress. They show you uh, political demonstrations going on and a family fight going on and noise and traffic and headlines. And it's very simple. You see, they have bear aspirin. And you take this bear aspirin and suddenly the world is absolutely quiet. And you sit back in a chair. Especially if you take enough. About uh, two. Yes. <laughs> And now there's no pain you can't bear. <laughs> this is the materialist approach to the problem. And seriously, I mean, we all laugh and think that's funny, but that is the materialist approach to the problem. Since there is no other solution, the only possible solution could be a material solution. They're just a little hypocritical, as I've said before, because... If you're going to take bear, why not take heroin and really do it? I mean, you know, why stop with bear? Even two bear, you know. So that's one approach. The only thing wrong with that is it wears off again, of course. Then you have to do more and it wears off. So what can you do about it? What can you do about it? There are little techniques that you can learn that help to reduce stress. Breathing techniques and stuff like that, which I am all for. But they will not solve the problem. They will alleviate the symptoms. To get to the root of the problem is to find out what is causing the stress. The world. <laughs> the world. Exactly. The world on the outside of that boundary. Or let's turn it around. If there was no you on the inside of the boundary, who would be experiencing any stress? Now, don't get me wrong here. It doesn't mean that the body, the physical body, is going to uh, necessarily walk through life without the blood pressure rising a degree, or without the heart beating faster. If we think that, we're still in delusion. We think we're this body. So we take the attitude, if I could just calm this body, that would solve the problem. But it wouldn't solve the problem. It might make stress not appear for a while. That isn't the problem. If there's no one in here, then even if the body gets excited, who's suffering stress? Those bodily sensations and responses and reactions may not necessarily be felt as suffering. Just like if you, I don't know, if you like sports, you go to a, a football game. And your team is behind by one point, And it's the last minute of the game. And your team is driving down the field to get to field goal range. Watch your body symptoms. Very much like stress. Your heart will be pounding You'll be on your seat. You'll be going, ooh, 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 come on, make that pass. But you, I don't know what tickets to a football game cost these days. 15 bucks must be. You pay 15 bucks to get this feeling. That's why you paid the 15 bucks. If you don't have this feeling at least once during the game, it's a very dull game. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Yeah. Why do you experience this as something pleasurable in the football game but in another situation, dealing with somebody, let's say a used car salesman, <laughs> why do you feel it as something that's uh, suffering? What's the difference? You're attached to the idea that, you know, this is something good and this is something bad. I and mean, you've got this idea that, um, 
you know, if you paid for it, it must be good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you've got the cart before the horse in this case, because you paid for it because you think it's something good. good. Well, why do you think that's good? And let's say you've been cheated by a used car salesman. You went out and you bought a car and you thought you're getting a deal. It was, you know, a thousand dollar car and you get home and you find that there's just nothing but sawdust in the crankcase and the car is basically worthless and there's nothing you can do about it. Thousand dollars you had to pay for that stress instead of fifty. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's, perception of the reality of it. I mean, that basically yes, is but, how you but that specifically, experience. first of all, the football game you know isn't absolutely real, right? This is the whole point about the football game. You can get really excited. You can have all the passion and emotion. But you know, in the ultimate sense, it doesn't really matter whether your team won or not. I think people feel that way about the chariot races. And certainly they did. Why are you people and things? That had to be more real. Yes, and they got a higher level of this adrenaline going. But it wasn't going to happen to them. It wasn't real for them. It was a game. They were circuses. Those same people, you take them out and put them in a Roman legion, and they'll have the same adrenaline running, but they won't have the same attitude about it. Because now they're in the arena, yeah. So are you saying that in the football game situation, you're basically taking the role of an observer, observing what's outside your boundary, whereas in the other situation, you're perceiving the person as sort of invading your boundary? You've got a victim. You are the victim. You are not the victim in the football game. Even if your team loses, you're still not the victim. Of course, unless you've bought all your <laughs> life savings on the team. So, but this is very important. You identify with your team, but you don't mistake your team for being you. It's very interesting thing to examine these situations, particularly with physiological reactions. Laughing and crying is a good example. If you walk into a room and you see someone sobbing and heaving and tears coming out of their eyes, unless you know the context, you don't know whether they're happy or sad. They might have just gotten the news that they had triplet grandchildren. I know why they're crying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I thought that was an example of happiness. <laughs> But you see, the physiological symptoms are virtually identical. So it's very interesting to watch your physiological sensations and see, is this really suffering? Or is it my interpretation of this that makes it suffering? Could this not be just energy in the body? And maybe if I could experience it as just energy, that energy would work creatively in the play rather than double back on me and be felt as something locked in. Your range of possibility opens up just on this physiological level when you haven't made up your mind beforehand what it is. I'm going to see this used car salesman again. I'm going to be stressed out. I'm not looking forward to this. You've already made up your whole mind about what's going to happen in that situation. But supposing you go with a mind that just wants to observe, that's very attentive. If you go with that attitude, and if you go into any situation, in all situations in life, that attitude, you start to see them in a different light. That is the key. And then you may find yourself in a situation with this used car salesman, telling you a lot of lies about the car and you brought it back, but he won't take it back. And you're having all these uh, emotions and everything else you're experiencing that, that you interpret as stress. And you know, you're angry, but you shouldn't be angry because you're a good spiritual seeker. You feel like throttling the guy, but you know, so then you feel a little guilty for that. And then you feel this powerless. There's nothing you can do about it and all those things, but they all are pre-programmed. They're all scripted. So if you watch, I can feel the energy pumping into my muscles. This is what's going on. 
it's this watching, this watching. And it is becoming a spectator at the sporting event. This is mindfulness. The sporting event is going on. But you are here. Then you start to see that event in a different light. That's what changes it. The seeing comes before the doing. Once you see it in a different light, it will change of its own spontaneously. It won't be some strategy you figure out. The old script will start to go out the window, and when the old script goes out the window, this calls for a spontaneous response on the part of the actors. You know, when something goes wrong in a play or somebody forgets their lines, you have to improvise. Sometimes the most creative moments in a play happen that way. As long as you're following the old script, there's no room for improvisation. So this is very important, and I know this is the hardest place to be mindful are in these situations where we're being really taken advantage of, money's at stake or something's at stake. And this is the time when most people completely forget about their spiritual practice. This is the time when you need it the most. And if you can take one encounter, and if in just one moment in that encounter, you get one little flash of insight, for instance, oh, I can experience my body this way and I don't have to decide that it is frustration. It might turn out to be a comedy. Has anyone had the experience where things get so bad you laugh? We have an expression like that. Maybe you go on vacation with your husband or wife or girlfriend or boyfriend, you know, and everything starts going wrong. You know, you're not sitting in the same seat, the plane almost crashes, you get to the place, the hotel has no room, you end up in a shack, it's supposed to be beautiful weather, it's raining. And then at midnight, you know, after going through all this all day long, fighting and frustrating and so forth, you just start laughing together. Have you ever had that experience, something like that? And then one last thing happens, of course. The roof leaks on your bed. The roof leaks on your bed, and you just give up then, right? You see, the whole thing turns around. Now it's a comedy. Oh, yeah. I had a question, John. Um, I ran into somebody that I know from some years ago who's doing counseling, um, specifically focused on cases of ritual abuse, which um, I'm starting to learn about that it's actually rather pervasive, more than I thought. And um, I'm wondering what is your opinion about these so called satanic cults? Is it um, purely a, a human phenomenon, or do you think that there is anything on a transcendent level, if one can even use that term, for something so evil? You know, the Tibetans deal a lot with demons, mm -hmm. partly because that's part of their culture. There are all sorts of spirits, and some are demonic, and some are, you know, benevolent and partly because they have a lot of experience with demons, because they do these very intense meditations in caves and so forth, and demons very often come and bother them. And there are rituals you can do and prayers you make to the guru and whatnot and so forth to protect yourself and this and that, but the bottom line is to realize that these demons are nothing but projections of the mind. And not only are these demons nothing but projection of the mind, everything else is nothing but a projection of the mind as well. <laughs> the whole world is a projection of the mind. Now notice, if what's being projected are demons, you have to deal with demons. I'm not saying dismiss it. If somebody comes to me and says, I'm possessed by a demon, I don't say, well, it's nothing but a projection of your mind. You have to deal with it. How do you deal with it? I'm not an expert on dealing with demons. I had one case of a guy who came to me who was possessed by, uh, I think he called it the beast that lived inside him. I know he was actually quite rational and I, I liked him very much. And the effect of it was he was an agoraphobiac. Is that the word for it? He couldn't go outside. Yeah. And uh, I sent him to Chakdu, the Tibetan uh, Lama down in Kaddish Grove. Chakdu has a lot of experience with demons. And Chakdu gave him some advice, and then I talked to him afterwards about what Chakdu told him. 
And he gave him all some dietary things and a whole bunch of stuff. But he said the most important thing, the most important thing in dealing with this demon, the most important thing is to remember whatever suffering you're experiencing because of this demon, the demon is experiencing tenfold. So you have to have compassion for the demon. Hmm. I did have a, a slight experience of demons when I was um, house-sitting one weekend, and there was a, just a, a terrific racket in the wardrobe. And I, um, I just thought a cat or something was in there trying to get out, and I opened the doors and there was nothing there. And that, that really terrified me, and so I put on all the lights all over the house, and I did some meditation for the spirit that was trapped, and to, to give it release, I felt as though it was communicating with me, and that there was nothing else after that. Look, whatever way the world manifests to you, you have to deal with it. This is why I say it's not a question of deciding which is the real world and which isn't the real world. It is a question of bringing to bear the universal principles of wisdom in any situation you find yourself in. And what is that? Compassion? Selflessness? Not to harm? You know, the spiritual principles work in any world you're in. Any world you're in. At any level. So, again, whatever world that you're in, don't ask the question, is this real? That's a false question to ask about these worlds. What is real is not any of these worlds. Ask yourself, how can I behave wisely and compassionately in this world I find myself in? I'd like to make a comment on the, on the personalities. I had a friend, and she was ritually abused. Sexually, yeah, she was ritually abused, sexually abused, and she was going to a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and they were doing hypnotherapy to bring it up, and she found 18 or more personalities that she had come up with, and these mm -hmm. were survival of right. the children that had to survive right. what she went through, the, yeah. the ritual abuse and the sexual and everything that she had went through, so she had to create those personalities to survive. Created, that's the key word, yeah. created. As a child. It's within the person, and I see the entity in the closet as being somehow different from that. Mm -hmm. It is different. Because um, I can understand in my own rational model, I understand this very well, and I don't understand the spirit in the closet. Because you draw the boundary differently. Now, for instance, I'll give you a very good example. Supposing... Um, as you're leaving here today, Mike comes up to you and he says, you want some good inside advice on the stock market. You can, you know, double your investments in a very short time. And you're intrigued. So you've got inside advice. Who from? And he says, well, there's this stray dog in my neighborhood. And he comes and he tells me. <laughs> and you look at Mike and he says, no, no. He says, this is my spirit helper. And he's, he helps me in a lot of ways. What's your reaction going to be to him? Do you understand? I think I might. I think I would understand that. <laughs> and would you invest? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, key question. Would you invest? I would okay. not invest, and I would suggest uh, for a little medication. <laughs> right. Now, let's say you were an Eskimo, an Eskimo culture, and the same thing happened. In fact, this is a, a true report of an Eskimo shaman. He's describing to a Norwegian explorer how he became a shaman. And he was out in his kayak one day, and this shark came swimming up next to him and called his name. And he was very surprised because the shark was out of the normal waters that sharks are in. Noticed he wasn't the least bit surprised the shark called his name. <laughs> Just that the shark was out of those waters. And then the shark started giving advice about hunting and stuff like that and where to go for seals and whatnot. And he said, that ever since then, my spirit helper has been with me and I get all sorts of advice and stuff. Now, does that shaman need some medication? Since I don't know that much about shamanism, I would be more open to that than I would be open to your dog. But this is the difference. It's not him or the shaman. All the people in the village, this is an actual shaman. I use a very prominent shaman in this village. They all would think you were nuts if you didn't understand. 
if you appeared in that society and said, I don't believe all this stuff, it would be like being in this society and saying, um, you know, I don't believe in the laws of physics. Now, let me go one step further. Now, supposing you tell them you should go see a doctor and get some medication and you go home and it's twilight and you're sitting on your porch and it's the evening and you're having a martini or something and this dog walks by the street and you hear, Anita. <laughs> now, what would you think? <laughs> She'd have another martini, maybe. But you would not believe it. You would dismiss it. You know what I mean? You'd say it's a trick of your imagination. You would say, ah, oh, that dog didn't really call my name. I was sitting here. It was twilight, and I've had one martini, and this was planted in my head by auto-suggestion because Mike was talking about it this morning. You wouldn't believe your own experience because you have an idea of how the world is, and things that don't fit into that, you dismiss. They're outside of the way your boundaries are set up. For Mike, for instance, he's experiencing this voice talking to him as coming from a dog outside. If you experienced it, you would experience it as something coming from inside. That's why you can understand multiple personalities, something inside, but a demon in the closet is something outside. It's where you're drawing the line. You see what I'm talking about? Different cultures draw the line in different places, and different people within a culture draw the line. And some people, who are usually considered in our culture quite disturbed, have a very weird way of drawing a line, so they don't fit into the rest of the culture, you know? And I'm not saying that they shouldn't be treated, because they often have a tremendous amount of suffering as a result, you know? And feel isolated and so forth. But again, we're not speaking about ultimates. We're not speaking about ultimates. And just in terms of, uh, if nothing else, survival value, it's the flexibility that's important. You know, this is the old Chinese image, you know, the, the, uh, the tree that bends in the wind. That's what life is. The brittle tree snaps, you know. So this is part of what a spiritual path is about, is to recognize the tentativeness of how we divide up the world. Not to hang on to that as an absolute. This is a function of our rational mind. It's very important. But to use it rather than to believe it's real. And in that flexibility, then, you start asking other questions. What's the meaning of the situation? What's the value of the information? rather than, is it real or not? Again, your whole life changes. What's the meaning of having a run-in with a used car salesman? That's a larger question. Going from watching the body right in the moment to ask yourself, what is the meaning of this? Is there an opportunity to practice something here? One of our virtues is patience. Well, sure, I believe in patience well. Now you're going to get a chance to practice it, you see? It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It's like learning the piano, you know? It doesn't mean you're going to sit down and uh, be able to play Brahms. It means here's an opportunity where I can practice patience. I can start to try it. It's like walking into a room and finding a piano. Oh, I can practice my piano now. And if you practice your piano every time you find a piano and one's available, then you'll start getting good. The first few times, you won't be able to do anything more than pick out chopsticks. So, there are related questions here. If you're on a spiritual path, your job is to find out what is reality. If you think you know before you're on a spiritual path, why are you on a spiritual path? Suspend the judgment about reality and start looking for other qualities in life. Such as meaning, such as compassion. Then your experience of life will change completely. And then maybe you will find out ultimately what's real. Wouldn't that be a surprise? <laughs> Any final questions? Well, I have one more, if you don't mind pursuing this reality. I get stuck on this reality all the time. So, in, in my mind, I'm uh, thinking, suppose there is a shaman who calls up a bear 
and there's like three people there who see this there. How would you understand that? <coughs> How would I understand that? Mm -hmm. Well, you have to place me in the situation okay, now. Uh, so somebody hands me a gun and says, shoot the bear? No. No. <laughs> no, these three people come back and tell you that they've seen the bear. I would say, what did the bear say? Would be very interesting, wouldn't you? It's a projection of their belief and their reality? I would understand it as a projection of consciousness. Period. Like everything else. See, I don't measure it against some other world that's more real. The reality is always there. This is all play on top of the reality. So what's important to ask? Well, what did the bears tell you? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's what's important. I mean, if the bear is a, a bear that's giving advice or something, whether the bear is real or not isn't important in that situation. So, you know, we look for the wrong things in situations. Where's the beauty in the situation? Where's the love in the situation? If somebody has a wonderful, loving relationship with a beautiful bear, <laughs> more power to them. And, you know, the funny thing is I did a lot of trans work, so I've had those kind of shamanistic experiences. And the thing that amazes me about being on that other side and having those guides come forward with something is that there is such a quick experience of understanding. It's like a light bulb goes off. They don't have to bring a message even. You know the message. It's just there's instant cognition of what you needed from that experience to heal. It's amazing experiences. It really is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can also have manifestations like this that don't have anything particularly valuable to say. Not everything that happens on, like, quote, the astral level is wise or brilliant. It can be demonic and it can be just plain stupid. Uh, it's not so prominent anymore, but in the last 10 years, channeling was very popular. And when I worked at the Bodhi Tree bookstore, for instance, and everybody was into channeling and so forth. And a lot of times people ask me, what do you think of channeling? And I said, well, listen to what's being said and is it valuable? Is it wise? A few of the most popular channels, we would put their tapes up, you know, they, they'd be channeling these entities, and we'd play them in the morning while we were cleaning up the bookstore. Uh, I, I got to tell you, a lot of it was like Dear Abby. I mean, I don't need to pay $100 a session. Do you know what I mean? I can read Dear Abby in the, in the morning for free. And I tell people that. They want to get into discussion, are channels real? Are there really entities out there? But is that what's important? No. So if you've got a 10,000-year-old being channeling and it's coming out like Dear Abby, what do you need? They just want to be able to talk and have someone listen to them. Okay, that's Maybe. a different story. Then I shouldn't be paying them the $100 that's an hour. They should be paying me the $100 an hour yeah. as you do for a psychiatrist. Of course. <laughs> uh, but you see what I'm driving at? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm hung up on because I can deal with trance states and understand that and I can't understand three people seeing the, seeing the same bear out there. I can understand one person seeing it and have that be a projection. So that I really, I realize I really am hung up on some ultimate reality, you know. And I hear what you're saying that there isn't such. A That's not a universal belief that uh, super phenomena is a uh, human projection. Not at all. Oh, I never said it was a human projection. Well, you're, that's the implication that it's a projection of consciousness. All super phenomenon is a projection of consciousness. All transcendent uh, manifestation is a projection of our consciousness. Oh, no, 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 you, no, no, you keep putting our and human in there. This is not human consciousness at all. I say human beings are a projection of consciousness. Oh. I say all uh, cars are a projection of consciousness. Gongs and clocks and all this is a projection of consciousness. This is consciousness and, with a big sense. And particularly oh. human beings. I'm not talking about projection of human consciousness here. There is no human consciousness. There's only consciousness. How many consciousnesses do you know firsthand? Several. Several? Several? <laughs> Who said several? <laughs> what? No, come on, stop. Look, there's consciousness. There's one consciousness. Where's the dividing line between consciousnesses? How about levels of consciousness? 
rather than different. But those are projections, states of consciousness. Look, I think I talked about this fairly recently, so I won't go into a big thing about it. Water, and this is an analogy only, and you're always going to trap me at the end of the analogy, but water is water. If you find it in the form of ice, it's water. If you find it in a liquid form, it's water. If you find it in steam form, it's water. It has all these states. Solid, liquid, and gaseous. It's always water. It does have lots of states. In that sense, you can talk about consciousness has lots of states, but it's always consciousness. And then if you think about this, what is the true state of water? What is the true form of water? Are two of these delusion? Is the ice the real water and the liquid and the gas, are they sort of not real? Water itself has no true form. You can't say ice is the true form of water and gas is some sort of phony form of water, or liquid is the true form of water. It itself has no form. But it is the substance of all those forms and all those states. That's what's projecting, so to speak. So if ice is appearing, ice is appearing. If human beings are appearing, human beings are appearing. Those are forms, states of consciousness, if you like. You know, if you study this in mathematics, once you draw basic distinctions, then a world unfolds from the way you drew the original distinctions. Logically, quite rationally. And shamanic worlds are quite rational. They're as rational as ours. It all works internally. If you believe this, then it all follows very logically. Do you know what I mean? If you draw your original distinction slightly differently, a different world unfolds. It all has its internal coherence and logic. Shamans aren't mad in their world because it's perfectly logical in their world. It all makes sense. So how different cultures drew those original distinctions is how their maps will come out. They're maps not of reality, they're maps of delusion. You can't draw a map of reality. It doesn't have any form. You draw a map of delusion. Maps of delusion are very, very valuable. Very difficult to work your way out unless you have a map. Take some psilocybins and have everything change. Ah, but yes, you'll have everything change. But again, so what? If there's no insight, if there's no wisdom, there's no point in going to other worlds. No matter how wonderful or fanciful, you know? The only thing that might convince you, and the value might be just that you realize, oh, I don't have to stay in the closet in the Taj Mahal. I can go into the ballroom, you know? But that in itself is just going from uh, ice to liquid. What's the insight here? All the yogic states of consciousness, the samadhis, the higher states of consciousness, it's not the state. If you go from solid to gas, and you don't have any insight about what this means, you go right back down to solid. And you go round and round. That's called cyclic existence. You can go to the highest heaven realms in the Tibetan tradition, and you go down to the lowest hell realms. God, don't you think there's going to be some change, there is going to be some insight that people can't experience those, those experiences, that it isn't going to have some effect? Somehow they have to be touched by those experiences. They're not touched by the experience. There's a little picture in our bathroom about a great yogi and his dog. Did you ever read that little, read oh. that little story in there? That's just the story about this. What he's touched by is compassion. The story of a. I'll tell the story. I can't. <laughs> well, I can't leave it on the tape this way. I'll tell it very quickly, and that'll be it for the formal part of the morning. Um, there was this yogi, and he started doing his yogic practices, and he had a little lame dog, a little lost puppy that he found and he took in. And, you know, he took care of this dog, he fed this dog, but he became a greater and greater yogi. And he would go in these higher and higher states of samadhi. And finally he got to the heaven realms. He'd left this whole realm of materiality behind. And he got up to the heaven realms and there was nothing but bliss in the heaven realms. Nothing but bliss. And he's sitting there in the heaven realms, nothing but bliss, but one little thing's bothering him. This poor little doggy that he left behind. And finally he says, well, it's just a mutt, but I'll leave the heaven realms and I'll go back down and take care of my dog. And he comes back down and his dog turns into a bikini. She says, ah, now you finally learned the lesson. Now I'll teach you the true teaching. 
which releases you from the whole cycle of existence. You don't just sit up in heaven realms enjoying bliss. What got him, you see? Compassion. So much so that even sitting in his own bliss in the heaven realms didn't give him any insight. So this is a very good story to balance out all this, all this idea of entering higher states of consciousness and the value of them. If there's no compassion in it, who needs it? Okay. Now there's some uh, hot water there, although it's a pretty hot day for tea. And there's also a jug of ice water.